you, Rob. Welcome again to Peninsula Bible Church. My name is Scott Grant, and I'll be bringing the word to you this morning. But before I do, I'd like to begin with a confession, and it's a rather embarrassing confession for a pastor. It's this. I'm not very motivated to share the gospel. Pastors are supposed to do that, right? I'm not that motivated to do so. There's the old expression where there's a will, there's a way. And maybe if I had more of a will, I'd find more of a way. And so what do I need or what do we need? Well, we don't need guilt because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't need more knowledge, though knowledge, more knowledge, unlike guilt, can be helpful. But we don't need more knowledge. Think back to Mark chapter 5. You've got the story of the Gerasene demoniac. He's possessed by a legion of demons. Jesus casts those demons out of him, and that man now is ready to follow Jesus. He's ready to get on the boat, follow Jesus, go to the other side, and uh, Jesus says, no, you stay here. Think of the opportunity that he would have to learn from the master, to get more knowledge. But Jesus tells him, Stay where you are, go about in your region, and tell everyone the great things that the Lord has done for you. And he does precisely that, and people are amazed. What does he know? He knows that once he was possessed by demons, and now Jesus has freed him. That's what he knows, and he tells people that, and people are amazed as a result. So what do we need? Maybe we need a little inspiration, a little inspiration, and a little inspiration is what Stephen gives us in Acts chapter 7. We've been looking at the sermons in the book of Acts, and we are now on our third sermon, and this is a sermon that is authored by Stephen. So we're going to look at that, plus his story a little bit, and see if we can be inspired by Stephen's sermon and his story. And in the end, he gives us this absolutely staggering, stunning, powerful, awesome image that if we can get that in our minds... I think it could do a long way, go a long way toward changing us in a lot of ways if we can get this one stunning image in our mind that Stephen gives to us. So Stephen um, is a follower of Jesus. He's not one of the apostles. So he comes on the scene in Acts chapter 7. We see that he is full of the Spirit, and then he goes around apparently telling people about Jesus, and he's making some enemies. So there are these accusations against him, and these people, they bring him before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, the same council that Jesus appeared before, and the accusations end up being against him, that he's speaking against the law, and he's speaking against the temple, speaking against the law and against the temple. Now, he's not doing that, but he was probably speaking in such a way that was unfamiliar to them. He was speaking about the law. He was speaking about the temple in ways that were unfamiliar to them. And uh, so the, the accusations come against him. And the high priest says to Stephen, are these things so? What are you going to say in response to these accusations? And Stephen responds by telling them the story of Israel, the story of Israel in three chapters demonstrating that the story of Israel was all designed to be fulfilled in the coming of the Jewish Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, and the coming of the Spirit. Those things now have happened. So this is a telling of the story of Israel with that particular emphasis, which his accusers do not really appreciate. So he tells the story of Israel in three chapters. Chapter 1, Patriarchs. Chapter 2, Moses. And chapter 3, Temple. 
Now, I'm not gonna read that part of Stephen's sermon. If I did so, if I read all of the whole thing, it would take about 10 minutes. So I'm gonna summarize what Stephen says. This is a, Stephen's story is a summary of the story of Israel. So I'm gonna summarize the summary. Now, I commend to you to read all of Acts 7. I'm not gonna do it here today. Again, it would take 10 minutes to do so. But here is the story of Israel in miniature, if you will. So by all means, read Genesis through Malachi. By all means, do that. But also read Acts 7, because there you get the story of Israel. And if you understand that from Acts 7, that'll give you a way to understand better the whole story of Israel. So that's really a great thing to do, although we're not gonna be doing that today. What I am going to do is to drill down on Stephen's application of the story of Israel, which we will get to in a few moments. So here's how the story goes from Stephen's telling. He speaks very highly of the heroes of the faith in Israel's history, but not so highly of their contemporaries. For example, he tells the story of Moses. We've seen the story of Moses. If you've been with us for the last few months because we've been studying the book of Exodus, we've seen the story of Moses and he extols Moses, but he doesn't extol Moses' contemporaries because they rejected him on multiple occasions and they rejected the Lord as well. And there are other heroes of the faith that he tells their stories. And again, it's the contemporaries that fall short. So he tells, uh, he speaks about the temple as well, Stephen does. He speaks very highly of the temple, but uh, not particularly in the way that his accusers would speak of the temple. So he goes back before the temple and tells the story of Abraham and the patriarchs and shows that God was with Abraham and others long before the temple got there. So God was with people, God was dwelling with people before the temple was actually built. So the temple was built according to the commandments of the Lord, first the tabernacle, then the temple, and God would take up residence in the temple to symbolize that he is dwelling with his people. So it's a good thing, but it's not everything. In fact, Stephen says that really, if you look at creation, creation itself is a temple. He quotes from the prophets to show that creation is a temple and that creation dwarfs this temple and that God dwarfs everything. So the temple isn't everything, it serves a useful purpose, but if you glorify the temple as his accusers are doing, you risk making it into an idol. You risk risk worshiping the temple as opposed to worshiping the God of the temple. So he speaks highly of the temple. He also speaks highly of the law, but he also observes, looking at the history of Israel, that the people were unable to keep the law. And also, if we look forward into the New Testament, into the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul tells us that the law was a guardian. The law served as a guardian to protect Israel until it came to adulthood. And now that Christ and the Spirit have come, Israel has reached adulthood. And so the law has fulfilled its purpose. And now we move forward with the Spirit, internalizing the law and making all things real and making the important aspects of the law, those enduring aspects of the law that that reflect ongoing and and eternal humanity. And the, 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 the Spirit realizes that aspect of the law for us. So what Stephen is doing is showing that the history of Israel is fraught. And that Israel at this time needs a fresh understanding of the temple and the law and even a fresh understanding of God himself 
so that Israel could understand that all of this was preparing for the coming of Christ and the Spirit. And within his telling of the story of Israel, we see this in Acts chapter 7, verse 37. This is Stephen speaking. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. The prophet like me would be Jesus of Nazareth, the Jewish Messiah, who was a prophet, yes, and also more of a prophet. So if you listen to Moses, you listen to the law, you listen to all of this, you'll recognize that it's all supposed to lead to Christ and also to the coming of the Spirit. So they needed a fresh understanding of all of these things. Our world today needs a fresh understanding of God based on what the scriptures actually teach, especially about what the scriptures teach about the coming of Christ and the Holy Spirit. N.T. Wright is a scholar, and before he was a scholar, actually probably while he was a scholar, he was also a chaplain at Oxford University. And what he would do regularly was meet with all of the first-year students for a few minutes. And some of them would tell him something like, well, you won't be seeing much of me this year because you have to understand I don't believe in God. So Wright heard that often enough that he began to have a stock response to that sort of response. And he would tell them, okay, well, tell me, which God is it that you don't believe in? So they would answer that question, stumble through their answers, and Wright would listen very carefully and then would come up with a stock answer that went something like this. Oh, that's very interesting. I don't believe in that God either. And then he would tell them about the God that he did believe in, the God who was revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. Now, our world doesn't understand who God is. It has conceptions, it has images, they've read things, but they don't really understand the God of the scriptures, the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ and in the coming of the spirit. Sadly, many people, I would say most people, who say that they believe in Jesus don't really understand the God of the scriptures because they are ignorant of the scriptures. They maybe read something once in a while, but they don't pour over the scriptures. They don't, they're not well taught. And so what we need to do and what we are committed to doing here at Peninsula Bible Church is we relentlessly study and preach and teach the word of God, knowing that we never know all that there is to know, knowing that we need to have our minds renewed, knowing that we always need to have fresh light break forth from the scriptures for us so that we can understand as well as possible who God really is, what he really said, how he reveals himself in Jesus Christ. So we now turn to the word of God, Acts chapter seven, beginning in verse 51. If you wanna follow, follow along in the Bibles, there are some Bibles in front of you, page 916. The text will also appear behind me. And now what Stephen does is he applies the history lesson. He's given to them the story of Israel, and now he applies it. Let's look at Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That's Christ whom you have now betrayed and murdered. 
you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. <laughs> he accuses them of being uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, circumcision was, give, was a right that was given to the people of Israel to demonstrate that they belonged to God. It was supposed to indicate outwardly an inward reality that they belonged to God. So as always in the scriptures, if you just have the outward right, that's nothing. The outward right is supposed to indicate something that's going on in the inside. And so Stephen accuses these people of following, following the letter of the law, but missing the whole point. You're supposed to be circumcised in your heart. You're supposed to belong to God in your heart. You're supposed to be circumcised in your ears so that you can hear him accurately, so you can understand what the word of God is saying. And Stephen is saying they are resistant to such things. And he accuses them of mimicking not the heroes of the faith from Israel of old, but those contemporaries who resisted the heroes and also resisted God himself. He says, you're just like the people the prophets were talking about. And, and you're just like the, the people who killed the prophets. And by the way, they're about to kill him as well, who's speaking for God. And he also says that you have betrayed and murdered the one that was anticipated by the prophets, indeed the one anticipated by the entire story of Israel. Your story is leading to this moment, and you missed the moment. You're so off kilter that you betrayed him, you handed him over to the Romans, and you murdered him. Let's think now about the temple and the law. God always wanted to dwell in a human. That was his purpose from the beginning. The temple was supposed to ultimately indicate that, that God wants to dwell in a human. And when Christ comes, that's exactly what happens. God dwells in Christ. The fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form. And so what about then the law? Well, Christ comes and fulfills the law. The Israelites were unable to keep the law. Stephen's accusers are unable to keep the law, but it is Christ who has kept the law and fulfilled the law. But what did they do? They murdered Christ. Now who's against the law? Now who's against the spirit? Now, I mean, now who's against the temple? It is not Stephen, it is Stephen's accusers. Stephen presumably could have made a defense in such a way that he spoke the truth, maybe in a little bit of a gentler way so that he could get himself off the hook. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he speaks in such a way that virtually seals his fate. He uses take-no-prisoner type language, and they will have none of it, none of him. But he's bold. So I have a confession, another confession, another embarrassing confession. I don't see myself in Stephen here. I don't see myself in this, in, in this man. This is... This is behavior with, this is a boldness with which I am not acquainted. But can Stephen inspire us? Now, I wouldn't say that this is the most winsome presentation of the gospel that I've ever heard. You stiff-necked people, you uncircumcised people, uncircumcised of heart, uncircumcised in heart and in ears, 
You are always resistant to the Holy Spirit. Not the most winsome presentation of the gospel. I'm not sure that uh, this language is necessarily appropriate for today. might think about that a little bit. But he's bold. There's no question he's bold in what he is speaking about. So we can aspire to his boldness. Maybe we'll talk a little bit later about the language that he uses and the language that we might use. I'm not sure about all of this, but I am sure about this. I'm impressed by his boldness. And we can aspire to his boldness. Peter and John, they went around sharing the gospel after Jesus commissioned them. And they were brought before the rulers and so forth. And uh, they were questioned and eventually they were released. They were incredibly bold. And after they came back, they reported back to everybody. And they and their friends, after they were bold to preach the gospel, prayed this way. Acts chapter 4, verses 49 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal... And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they were bold to preach the gospel. And even when they were bold to preach the gospel, they still prayed for boldness. Could we continue to be bold? So be bold. And if you lack boldness, or even if you don't lack boldness, pray for boldness. Just pray for boldness to share the gospel. Watch what God does with that prayer. He did some amazing things with that prayer in Acts chapter 4. Joseph Son was a pastor in Romania during communist rule, and he was persecuted severely, and he tells this story. I had a man in an important position whom I baptized come to me and ask, now what shall I do? They will convene three or 4,000 people to expose me and mock me. They will give me five minutes to defend myself. How should I do it? I've got five minutes to defend myself. What do I do, Brother Joseph? Tell me, how should I defend myself? Brother Joseph said this. Brother, defending yourself is the only thing you shouldn't do. This is your unique chance to tell them who you were before and what Jesus made of you, who Jesus is and what he is for you now. Sounds a lot like what Jesus told the Gerasene demoniac. His face shone and said, Brother Joseph, I know what I am going to do. And he did it well, so well that afterwards he was severely demoted. He lost almost half his salary. But he kept coming to me after that saying, Brother Joseph, you know I cannot walk in that factory now without someone coming up to me. Wherever I go, somebody pulls me in a corner, looks around to see that nobody sees him talking to me, and then whispers, give me the address of your church, or tell me more about Jesus, or do you have a Bible for me? Back when the Bible was not on the internet because there was no internet. So Stephen is bold. He is also loving. We see that in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to 60, to the end of the chapter. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, 
I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Three sermons so far in Acts. First two by Peter. This is the third one by Stephen. Peter's first sermon wins 3,000 converts. His second sermon wins 5,000 converts. We are really moving now. This is a movement of the spirit. Everything is going up and to the right. What are we expecting now? 10,000 converts. Maybe by the end of the Acts, we're gonna get to millions or who knows, because we are starting big. Man, we're going 3,000, 5,000. And Stephen now preaches this amazing sermon, which wins to Christ exactly zero people. None. Zip. Nada. What happened to this big movement? Well, it looks like, not, looks like things have stalled here. But is that really the case? Because if you read forward, actually, if you read the next verse, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, you find out that what this generated was a great persecution. That doesn't sound like good news. That doesn't sound like everything going up and to the right. But that great persecution scattered believers to Judea in the south and into Samaria in the north. And remember, what did Jesus say at the beginning of Acts to his apostles? You will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the end of the earth. It's happening. As Stephen is persecuted and Stephen is killed and this persecution happens and provokes everyone to go out and to do exactly what Jesus wanted them to do. Moreover, there is this young man named Saul who is waiting in the wings. He doesn't know it, but he's waiting in the wings and he's about to become the apostle Paul. He's watching the garments. He's watching the coats. He's all in favor of the stoning. <laughs> but Jesus is gonna get a hold of him. Furthermore, we do not know how Stephen's prayer was answered. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. We don't know that. So around here, we tend to obsess about effectiveness. That's what your workplace wants you to do, and you need to do that. I understand that. Are we being effective or are we not being effective? What do we need to, what do we need to change things to, so that we can be more effective? Well, it looks like Stephen was ineffective. He's a preacher of the gospel, wins no one. If you focus and obsess over effectiveness, effectiveness often is going to elude you. However, if you focus on faithfulness, the Lord is going to use your faithfulness in ways that you have no idea, even after you're dead. 
because it was after Stephen was dead that the really great stuff came about from his witness. Stephen looks to heaven and he sees the glory of God. Not in the temple, by the way. He sees the glory of God in the heavens. And what else does he see? He sees the Son of Man, who is Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Now, where does this language come from? Son of Man. It goes all the way back to Daniel. Daniel, in Daniel 7, he's a prophet. He has this vision of the Son of Man, who is the representative, the royal representative of God's people, ascending, rising, coming up to the Ancient of Days, who is God, to receive an everlasting kingdom. That's where the Son of Man language originates. Jesus, of course, appropriates the title Son of Man for himself. He declares himself to be the Son of Man. And he, when he was before this very same council, said that he was going to be seated at the right hand of God. As the Son of Man, he said, I'm going to be seated at the right hand of God, which basically sealed his fate. What he's saying is, to these particular accusers, to the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, you can do what you want in this little earthly courtroom. It really doesn't matter to me, but the courtroom that counts is the heavenly courtroom. And in that courtroom, the tables are gonna be turned and I'm gonna be sitting in judgment over you. That's what that means. Well, (laughs) the accusers of Stephen sort of understand this language too and they are furious. They are furious that Stephen has turned the tables on them. And they cry out with a loud voice in order to rush at him and in order to stone him. They take him outside the city to stone him. Jesus was crucified outside the city. So so Stephen's story echoes the story of Jesus. So they cry out with a loud voice to stone him. And then Stephen cries out with a loud voice also, doesn't he? To do what? Intercede for them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen's last prayer is for those who are killing him. That's love. He loves these people whom he calls stiff-necked. He loves them. Jesus, of course, said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen echoes that prayer. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He is depicted in Acts 7 as a Christ-like figure, following Christ, echoing the story of Christ. First, be bold in sharing the gospel. If you lack boldness, pray for boldness. Second, be loving. Love people. Love people enough to share the gospel with them. If you lack love, do what? Pray for love. Pray for love. Let's think about this language a little bit. Stiff-necked, uncircumcised in ears and heart, always resistant to the Holy Spirit. Doesn't sound like language that's very loving, does it? I don't suggest that we use this language or think about using this language very often unless the Spirit leads us to do so. I take it that Stephen uses this language because the Spirit has inspired him to do so. Throughout Acts 7, he is depicted as a man who is full of wisdom, full of grace, full of power, full of the Holy Spirit. 
So these words are coming from the Holy Spirit. Apparently, at this time, in this place, with these people, this language is appropriate. Just make one basic observation. It is possible to use this kind of language and be loving. It is possible to use this kind of language because you are loving. I'm not suggesting that you use this kind of language unless the Spirit directs you to, but just let me throw that out there that it is possible for these things, both these things to be true. Harsh language, love. In our world, completely rejects that. Anything that doesn't affirm people where exactly where they stand is considered hateful and unloving. So be very careful, be prayerful, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit on using this kind of language. I just wouldn't advise it, coming out of the chute with this kind of language and uh, start with, you know, the old gentle answer, turns away wrath. Just kind of think about that basically as your fallback position. Who knows, maybe this kind of language might be appropriate in some cases. But it is not words alone usually that win people to Christ, is it? It's words plus love. Even when someone comes forward at a meeting, there's usually a backstory in which this person has seen the love of Christ somehow, some way, even if someone invited them to this meeting. So be loving. And if you lack love, pray for love. I read the book several years ago called Unbroken. It's the story of Louis Zamperini, who, um, it's just an amazing book and it's an amazing story. If you haven't read it, I commend it to you. I watched, finally watched the movie Unbroken a few days ago for the first time, so I'm, the story is kind of fresh for me. Let me tell you one aspect of Louis' story. He was uh, in World War II and he was taken prisoner. He was a prisoner of war in Japan and he was tortured. He was beaten for two and a half years. He almost died. Somehow he survived. But after he survived and he came back to the States, he was haunted, he was tortured. We would say now that he suffered from post-traumatic stress. He became a drunk, he drank heavily, he had these nightmares in which he was killing his former captors. He was a tortured man. His wife came to Christ. His wife suggested why don't you go to this Billy Graham campaign in Los Angeles in 1949? That's where they lived. This was Billy Graham's first big campaign. And so he went. He went the first day, and uh, I guess he was moved, but um, he said, okay, I'll go back the second day, but I'm not going forward. I'm not doing any of this get on my knees thing. I'm not doing any of this prayer thing. But that's exactly what happened the second day. He got on his knees, he prayed, and he accepted Christ. And this doesn't always happen this way, but immediately there was change. Immediately the nightmares were gone. Immediately he stopped drinking and he was able to work through forgiving all of those people, all of those prison guards who tortured him. In fact, a few years later, he made a specific trip to Japan to seek out those prison guards. Some of them, many of them, were in prison themselves because of the crimes that they committed. They were guilty of war crimes. He went into the prison and he told each one of them that he forgives them. And he also shared the gospel with them. Many of them came to Christ. Praise God. Words plus love. My friends, if you want to conquer the world, 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be bold, be loving to share the gospel. If you lack boldness, if you lack love, or even if you don't, pray for boldness, pray for love. You have nothing to lose and you have everything to gain because the only evaluation that really matters in the end is the assessment of the heavenly court, not the earthly court. Stephen sees Jesus. He sees the Son of Man. Where does he see him? He sees him in heaven. But he sees him as he is on the front lines. He doesn't see him in the prayer closet, though you can see Jesus in the prayer closet. He doesn't see Jesus as the church is gathered in worship, though you can see Jesus as the church is gathered in worship. No, he sees Jesus as Jesus sends him to the front lines for the battle for the hearts and minds of men and women. If you want to see Jesus, consider going to the front lines in the battle for the hearts and minds of men and women and children in this world. One more observation. Consider this. There's a difference, isn't there, between what Jesus said and what Stephen sees. Jesus see, Stephen sees the Son of Man. What posture does he see as he looks into heaven and sees the Son of Man? And what did Jesus say? Jesus said he would be seated at the right hand of God. Every reference in the New Testament concerning the posture of the Son of Man has him in one particular position. I am now going to read every single reference in the New Testament to the posture of the Son of Man. See if you can note the difference. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus said this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Matthew 26, 64. Jesus said to them, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Mark chapter 14, verse 62, and Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Luke chapter 22, verse 69, but he, Jesus, said to them, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, the apostle John says this, then I looked and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Every other reference in the New Testament to the Son of Man, to the posture of the Son of Man, has him sitting on his throne. Stephen, as he looks into heaven, he sees the Son of Man not sitting on his throne but standing. Brothers and sisters, as you pray for boldness, as you pray for love to share the gospel, look into the heavens. Use your imagination and picture your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, standing for you.
That's the image, the powerful image that can really transform us if we would get that into our minds. All right, so we're going to transition to a time of communion. It's going to be a come forward communion today. And uh, let's think about this. This is, uh, rep- represents, obviously, the, the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. That's what this represents. That's what Jesus did for us. Stephen's body was broken. He was stoned. His blood was shed. He, he thought that this was worth everything. He thought that this was worth his life. So as we partake, if you're in the middle, you can come forward as, the, as you're dismissed by the ushers. The people in the wings can come forward as they please. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, we're, we're weak, we're fragile, we lack boldness, we lack love. And we confess all that, but you know all that. And you love us and you died for us. And here we are coming to this table that you spread out for us view of your sacrifice. So thank you so much. As we take in your body, as we take in your blood represented here by the bread and the wine, would you infuse us with your life? Would you infuse us with your power, your strength, your love, your mercy, your boldness? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.